Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast. I'm Dave Etler, and I've got a very serious subject to talk to you about this week on the podcast. I want you to try something. Let me turn down the intro music here. It's a little too peppy. So close your eyes and picture an opioid abuser. If you're like me, you see a man in a flop house or a dark alley. He's cooking up heroin in a spoon over a lighter. Maybe he has a loop of tubing around his upper arm and he's shooting the heroin into a vein in the crook of his elbow. Once he's done with the injection, he leans back with a euphoric sigh. Fade to black. Maybe it's just me, but this is the image that for years mediated my perception of the opioid epidemic. But it's a stereotype created by television and movies. Even as a stereotype, it's outdated, though. For decades now, much of the epidemic is one of prescription drugs. The CDC says 78 people die from opioid overdoses every day. At least half of all opioid overdoses are from prescription drugs. Meanwhile, deaths from illegally made opioids like the synthetic fentanyl, which is often mixed with heroin or cocaine to increase the high, went up 80% from 2013 to 2014. The American Society of Addiction Medicine says that prescription pain reliever overdose deaths among women increased more than 400% from 1999 to 2010, compared with 237% among men. In 2014, 168,000 adolescents were addicted to prescription pain medications. More than two and a half times that number of kids were taking prescription pain relievers for non-medical uses. Next week, from September 26th to September 30th, 2016, the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine will host the Opioid Overdose Prevention Summit. Second-year med students Sarah Ziegenhorn, Petra Hahn, and Cameron Foreman helped organize the conference, in which students from the Colleges of Medicine, Dentistry, Pharmacy, Social Work, Public Health, and Nursing will join together to increase their knowledge and to influence public policy and legislation, personal perspectives, and student advocacy. For today's show, Sarah, Petra, and Cameron were joined by Assistant Dean Denise Martinez and Nurse Kim Brown, whose son Andy died of an overdose. My name's Kim Brown. I'm a registered nurse, a mother and a grandmother, and my son Andy died of an accidental heroin overdose on May 25th, 2011, five years ago. His two young sons were living with me at the time and remain here. And I have a very intense desire to promote harm reduction in the state of Iowa and do something about all these young folks dying in our state. All right, so I think it might be good to start out by just kind of giving some background about where we are nationally with this epidemic as as well as where we are in Iowa. So, Dr. Martinez, do you want to kind of kick that off? Yeah, so I would say probably 20, 30 years ago was the foundation of this epidemic, in my opinion. Um, and so basically there was a development of more narcotics, longer acting narcotics that got onto the market by pharmaceutical companies. And one thing that they did is that they advertised very highly to 
who uh, trainees and residency programs and other programs saying it's incredibly important that we treat people's pain. And not only that is, you know, we have a great medication with great medications that help with pain treatment. And it's something that you can't get addicted to. There aren't any particular problems, maybe some constipation with opioids, but, you know, we definitely need to be addressing pain. And part of that, you know, even the questions that we asked, they really had an influence of saying, you know, when people come to the emergency room or they come to their primary care physician, what is one of the first questions that we ask them? We ask them, you know, to rate their pain. And that's one of the first questions. We don't ask them if they've done exercise. We don't ask them about things that also are incredibly important, but pain. And so people started handing out opioids fairly liberally, and it was important to treat pain. And they thought that this was a good medication to do so, not fully understanding the significant harm that is caused by them. So I think that was an early stage of helping people to get their hands on these medications. And oftentimes um, when people start, it's because they had it initially for something that they really needed it for. So for example, you know, if somebody has surgery or their breaks a leg and then they get a prescription for these medications and then very quickly people can get addicted to them and that can lead to abusing the opioid prescriptions themselves as well as other drugs like heroin. And so we consume more opioids than any country in the world. And I know we have some really good statistics and data about that, but that's my understanding of how this all has happened. And now all of a sudden after, you know, a couple of years of medical practice, a couple dozen years where we've been doing something some way and realizing it's harmful, we're trying to, you know, make a difference in the system. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing now, particularly with your patients? Yeah, so I would say here specifically in Iowa, I've definitely seen a large increase in the amount of heroin people are using. And so again, for most of my patients, it was a matter of they first started with some prescription opioid. And then because heroin had been relatively inexpensive, it was easy to get this medication that they were addicted to. And I've seen it in very diverse sectors. So sometimes you would just suspect lower socioeconomic status status or lower education status. And actually, in a lot of patients I've seen, that's actually not been the case. And some of my opioid abusers, actually, one of them who finally admitted to me that she had an opioid problem, she was a social worker here in the community. And so it's touching lots of different types of people and lots of different education levels, lots of socioeconomic classes, and it's a real problem. It seems to me like this is maybe part of why we have been slow to recognize the full impact of opioids because we think of them as prescribed to the patients initially, and because of that, we don't think of them as dangerous as some illicit drugs. Absolutely. So in recent years, it's been relatively easy at times to get opioid medication. If you say, oh, I have this pain or this or that, getting a prescription wasn't that difficult and it wasn't viewed as potentially harmful. But we now know that's you know very, very far from the truth, unfortunately. I think one statistic that jumped out at me a lot and that I think makes this issue seem very real is the widely quoted number that there are enough opioids in the country so that every American out of all 249 million of us can have our own full bottle of opioid pills for use. And that includes children too. So that's a lot of pills. Right. And to further show the scope of this, so opioid overdose deaths are greater in number in the U.S. than all other overdoses. And so I don't know if opioids necessarily jump to our mind as that number 
number one drug for overdose deaths, but it is huge. And it's the overdose deaths themselves that are becoming a leading cause of death in the country. With last year, there were 47,000 deaths from an opioid overdose in the United States, but um, motor vehicle accidents killed about 30,000. Wow, that's really something. And I think one of the hard pieces about this is that in medicine, we actually don't have a lot of great things that treat pain. And so for, you know, when somebody's had a surgery or someone needs actual pain relief, we go to opioids on a regular basis because that makes sense. And there's indications for opioids in those particular purposes. But when people start having chronic pain or other things that are more long term, um, even short term, again, because that can be a place where people can get hooked, potentially, we don't have great medicines to treat those things. And that makes it very hard, especially when people are coming to you as a physician and saying, can you please address my pain? I can barely function. We've talked a little bit about this problem as a clinical problem at the national level and something that's clearly affecting a lot of people in our country. I'm wondering, Kim, if you might want to talk a little bit about how you see opioids in the community affecting people in our state on an individual level. What I'm seeing in the state of Iowa since 2011 is a explosion of opioid deaths And I think in 2013, they started cracking down a bit on the prescription pills and heroin use went up when people couldn't get their pills. So if they can't get that prescription opioid pill, they're going to turn to the streets and get heroin. The uses either way are are balancing out. So that really taking away from one area is really not benefiting those who have a substance use disorder and are dependent on those drugs to feel normal. Typically, the overdose deaths are usually caused by poly drug use. Prescription pills that a doctor writes a prescription for are not illicit drugs. We know exactly what's in them because they're regulated. When we run into folks that are using street drugs and perhaps alcohol, or a benzodiazepine, those combinations are deadly. Whether they're an illicit drug or whether they're a prescription that a doctor writes. So when I educate folks, I try to make sure that they understand that they should never mix drugs. That's a fundamental difference in what somebody's using. Um, 47,050 people died in 2014 from opioid overdose. Iowa numbers, I don't have an exact count. I do know that I went to a town hall meeting with the Eastern Iowa Heroin Initiative in March of 2016, I believe. And they noted that there were over 300 overdoses in the city of Cedar Rapids. And Scott County is now leading the pack in Iowa on overdose deaths. So we we have a big problem in our state, and that's why I would like to focus my attentions on harm reduction, minimizing the harm, looking for positive change, and keeping these young folks alive with naloxone. Absolutely. That's a really good transition. I just wanted to go back to what Dr. Martinez said about her patients that started using opioids as prescriptions. And echo what you said, Kim, we know that in research, four out of five new heroin users started out misusing prescription drugs and then turned to heroin or other street drugs. So in talking about naloxone, can we talk about that? 
Yeah, so naloxone is, it is an opioid antagonist, and so folks can administer naloxone to someone who's having a drug overdose. You can administer it through someone's muscle tissue, so there's an injector that um, you can give to someone. Another easy way to give naloxone is a nasal spray, and you just administer it by blowing the spray up someone's nose, kind of like allergy medicine. It works pretty effectively to reverse an overdose for a small period of time. Right, so one of our goals through this will be increasing access to naloxone. And so, Dr. Martinez and Kim, do you maybe want to talk a little bit about some of the challenges in getting this life-saving drug? I would be glad to. Do you want me to talk about the bill right now? Or do you want me to talk about availability in Iowa? Let's start with availability and then go to the bill. Okay, the availability in my community, I cannot speak for the whole state of Iowa, but I did have folks in Des Moines and Iowa City call pharmacies. As you know, we do not have a standing order to train and dispense. Lay people can obtain naloxone per prescription from their physician, and I believe pharmacists will be allowed to dispense with a standing order. I called pharmacies here in Davenport and the surrounding areas, and that would be the CVS, uh, Maine at Locust, the hy pharmacies, and um, Walgreens. Walgreens was the only pharmacy that actually stocked naloxone. They had five kits. It was $30 for two um, IM injections, which you need to when you're out in the field because one may not be enough, especially with the fentanyl and the carfentanil that they're, they're finding now in either the illicit pills on the street or the heroin. So Walgreens had five kids. Every other pharmacy, including North Scott Pharmacy um, that I reached out to, only ordered on demand. They had none stocked in their pharmacies, but they would order on demand, and before they would order that for you, you would need a prescription. Some of them are preloading syringes with a mill each, and some of them you have to have the script written by your um, provider that states to uh, dispense six preloaded syringes. They kind of explained the deal to me. But you had to present your prescription before they would order on demand and then they would probably most likely get it in the next day. Um, Right there that poses an availability problem to me as well as a cost prohibitive problem to me because active drug users and those that love them dearly are not going to be many times able to wait a day to be able to obtain their naloxone. They're so afraid that they're going to go out and use in an hour. They need it when they need it. Obtaining scripts from providers are great, but um, as you all well know with our healthcare delivery system, your provider may not be able to do that for you when you need them to. They may have to schedule to see you in a week. So there's a lot of um, negatives to the availability. My friends in Des Moines and Iowa City ran into pretty much the same of what I'm telling you now. I ordered a nasal kit from a company and it was $79 for two doses. So I think we're looking at probably between $30, $45 for two dose kits and a little more for the nasal. And we all know what the Avizios are running right now. Our auto injectors are running probably over $1,000 wow. for the um, trainer and two injections. So it's incredibly cost prohibitive and expensive. And what we need to be doing in our community 
is getting folks trained, people, active drug users, the people that love them, families, friends, all responsible community members need to be trained at carrying the naloxone in their pockets. And right now there's the way our law reads and the way the pharmacies are stocked at this point, we're not doing a very good job here in Iowa. So in April of 2016, Iowa passed a naloxone expansion legislation and the governor signed it into law earlier this year. The law is currently in the rulemaking phase um, and we expect the rules to be released sometime in early 2017. Kim, what's in the bill? It's called the Overdose Prevention Act, I believe. In the bill, first responders, law enforcement, lay people, anybody that's able to render aid in the event of an overdose, it's okay for them to carry naloxone and have it with them as long as they obtain it per prescription from their provider or the standing order from the pharmacist. There is no good SAM language in the bill. Can you tell us what that good SAM language is for those of us that might not know? It's limited immunity to prosecution in the event of an overdose. And that would be um, simple possession, paraphernalia, and small amounts of a controlled substance on your person. There would be immunity from prosecution for the overdose victim and the caller in the event of an overdose when somebody called for help. There is none in the bill. So what you're saying is that if I overdosed today and Cameron administered naloxone to me that we, if there was Good Samaritan language, that Cameron could call 911 and take me to the hospital and we wouldn't be ending up in prison for drug possession. Is that what you're saying? That's the intent, yes. But we don't have that here in Iowa now. No, we have no immunity for calling in the event of an overdose in our state right now. So if you call, you're most likely going to be arrested and prosecuted. And that's why a lot of folks don't call. That's why we're seeing a lot of deaths because people run. And I want to say right now on this podcast that my son, when he died, he was not alone in that house. My son was not alone and nobody called for help. Uh, That's, awful. That is reprehensible. And we need to change that in this state so that people are not afraid to call our public servants for help. Absolutely. And I think it's important to bring up here why it is so important to still make that call to the ambulance after you have administered naloxone. And so naloxone works on the same receptors as heroin or other opioids but it wears off after around 30 minutes. And so many people, they'll inject and they'll reverse the overdose and they'll appear to be okay, but this is just going to be for a limited time. And so it can be difficult without the Good Samaritan language to get people who are feeling normal to call the ambulance. But after 30 minutes, when the naloxone wears off, these people can go back and overdose again and that's when we're seeing a lot of these deaths i mean that is why we're really pushing to have this good samaritan language especially with our long very long acting opiates that are out there that are on the streets now you're absolutely right people can and do 
go right back into overdose and need that second injection, sometimes more with the fentanyl and the carfentanil right now. So good point. And I think it's also important as a medical student, I think, oh, we should really get naloxone into the hands of our first responders and our police force. But it's actually been shown by the CDC that most of these opioid overdose reversals are done by lay people, are done by other users of opioids. Do you see that in your community, Kim? Well, in my own community right here, I can only speculate because I really have no sufficient data to give to you, but I can say that yes, that is most likely true. And in other states, we know it's true because they're keeping track. That's why we have these statistics from the CDC that one of my friends authored, and actually 82.8% of reversals are done by active drug users for each other with 9.6 for family members and only 2% for law enforcement and EMS. So that's why it's so incredibly important that we get this overdose reversal drug to the people that are going to make a difference. Right. And that's why we have to get the Good Samaritan language and remove the barriers for people to get these prescriptions when you're talking about coming into your pharmacy or going to your primary care provider. And maybe, Dr. Martinez, you can talk to us a little bit about writing a prescription for naloxone. To be honest, I've only written a couple. And so I think having a lot of physician education or provider education is incredibly important and saying this is how you prescribe it these are the pharmacies that we can make sure that they have it in stock and I think as providers trying to do some advocacy in that way is also incredibly important but I think in general a lot of primary care or physicians in general aren't aware that they can write this prescription and that something that they can be or should be counseling um, about so I think that education for physicians is incredibly incredibly important. Dr. Martinez could you talk to a little bit about what types of patients prescribing a naloxone prescription for? For example, would you prescribe it for anyone who takes an opioid? That's a really good question. So me personally, and it would be interesting to see what particular guidelines on this, but I personally would prescribe it to people who have discussed with me they've had difficulty in the past, particularly with their opioids, and I think I would definitely push for that significantly. Um, I also have people who have been heroin users as well, and so I think you know pushing that as well. What I would say every opioid person, I'm not sure about that. So what we're trying to do very strongly is primary care providers, for people who are on chronic opioids, we monitor them incredibly closely. So they get random urine checks. They also get only one month at a time. And they also have to come in monthly to get those prescription medications. And so oftentimes the people, if we do have people who are on chronic narcotics, there are people who've been on it for a long time who have been monitored closely and shown a history of non-abuse. But I'm not sure if that is sufficient. And I think that's a really good question. Is there any pushback against increasing access to naloxone? I don't think so, mm-hmm. honestly, but I do think that there's a lack of awareness right. and that will be the biggest piece that providers just don't know that this is something that they should either be thinking about or something that they should be actively prescribing. One option that other states have used is creating standing orders so that physicians can write a prescription to not just an individual patient, but to an entire organization or to an entire community. Kim, can you talk a little bit about those laws? 
Yes. In fact, I've been having meetings with my mayor. I'm going back Wednesday to try to get a standing order to dispense and train right here in my own community, a municipal order. I have several examples of them. And harm reduction organizations have used them for over 20 years to work in their own communities with folks that are active drug users. That way you are able to contact the harm reduction organization, get trained, and receive your naloxone. And the cost is usually minimum to nothing because you can obtain grant funding to get that naloxone into your community if you have this standing order. It's not a new concept. It's really, like I said, about 20 years old. It's just new to Iowa, I think, because we're in the middle of the country. And I think we were probably the last to be hit with this, but we all knew it was coming and now it's here. So I'm working in my own community to establish a standing order for the 2017 session, we'd also like to insert some of that standing order language into the bill along with good SAM language. And I do want to add that when we're talking about getting naloxone out, kind of the herd inoculation mentality, we don't want to forget rehab facilities and jails. I called the Scott County Jail. They don't stock it here. And I don't know if you've noticed that looking at the news over the last year, we've had more than several overdose deaths inside jails and the jail staff was not prepared or supplied or ready for those overdoses and lives have been lost because of that. So when we're talking about naloxone, I think we need to make sure that it's in our jails and our rehab facilities. Doctors should discharge patients on pain medications with a prescription for naloxone just in the accidental event that, you know, grandma doesn't always get it right. I worked long term a long time and they can get confused with their medications and and that may be needed in the medicine chest as well. So there's a lot of gaps that we have here in Iowa that we could work on to certainly enhance the quality of life for people and save lives. One program that I think is a really cool example of how all of this works and comes together is HIPS in Washington, D.C. Recently, the District of Columbia granted permission for a standing order to the Department of Health, and so the Department of Health got together some funding, and they paid for about 20,000 naloxone kits, and then they gave those kits out to community-based organizations in the district. So these are small organizations that operate in neighborhoods neighborhoods where they have long-standing relationships with people who are injecting drug users. And so HIPS takes out these kits, these naloxone kits, into the community to folks who are in need of them, distributes and then collects data on how many overdoses they reverse. But one thing that I think is sometimes tricky that I forget and that I learned from HIPS was that folks who are coming out of jail can sometimes be the most at risk of an overdose because your tolerance changes when you're not using for some time. And so that population, I'm glad that you mentioned that, Kim, because I think it's good to remember that that is a particularly vulnerable population to overdose. Kim, one thing we've been talking a little bit about is harm reduction. Can you explain what harm reduction is? Yes, harm reduction is just a set of principles that reduces harm in the community. We're talking about it today regarding um, active drug use. So, of course, that would be clean needles, naloxone. But really, harm reduction goes on every day in our lives and we don't think about it. We... um, put a life jacket on when we're in the boat. We put sunscreen on when we go out in the sun. 
we wear our seatbelts. We make sure our children are secure. Those are all ways to reduce harm. And I think that harm reduction is just so important because people may not be ready to be made to stop using drugs. They may not be there yet. They may not be ready for medicated assisted treatment. They may not be ready for rehab. And we all know because of the dire statistics that forced treatment doesn't work and they are discharged and then they die because they've been abstinent for a time as Sarah was talking about in jail and their tolerance level is so low. I know that's why my son died. He'd been in jail for about 30 days, came out, overdosed and died. So harm reduction is a set of principles to keep people safe, um, reduce the harm to them and others around them and to help them move towards any kind of positive change. We should be ready for that. So you talked about clean needle usage as a strategy for harm reduction. And one thing that as a medical student, we learn about when we're thinking about injection drug using and clean needles is transmission of other diseases besides drug use. So we think about HIV, hepatitis C. How can clean needles help with harm reduction with the increased incidence of HIV and hep C? Well, certainly when you cannot get clean needles, you're going to share them if you're an IV drug user, right? And and that's just the way it is. And that's why we're seeing a huge increase in not only the nation, but in Iowa with our hep C rates. So if we can dispense clean needles, and of course you you would have a, a, hopefully have a, a needle exchange program where they return what they use, you give them what they need. You're gonna reduce the incidence of those um, infectious diseases right there with clean needles. The feds lifted the ban, but we gotta go state to state to reinstate the ability to um, dispense clean needles. Absolutely. And Dr. Martinez, can you talk a little bit about long-term effects of something like hepatitis C, how expensive it is? Yes, no, absolutely. So hepatitis C, it, it can be extremely expensive. And again, sometimes people for years won't have any symptoms necessarily. And then sometimes you start to have really severe symptoms and including cancer of the liver, including complete liver failure and need of potentially a liver transplant, which can amount to just hundreds of thousands, if not more dollars. So that's huge. Right. And so I think that one argument that can be made is not only are you saving people's lives by implementing harm reduction strategies, but you're also saving a lot of costs, which is a very calculated way of thinking about it. But for folks that are not entirely comfortable with talking about drug use, saying something like, well, you know, this person is going to have hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of medical care. Why don't we just keep them from getting this kind of disease in the first place? Do you find that argument to be pretty effective, Kim? Yes. With talking to the legislators and things in Des Moines? Yes. When you start talking money with the legislators, they're more apt to listen to you when it comes to harm reduction and um, drug use than the moral issue of saving lives, sadly. When you talk about money, people do pay attention. So yes, I I think that's a well-oiled argument right there (laughs) that you're going to save money by reducing the incidences of these infectious diseases. And in Iowa, it's a lot of money that we 
might be at risk of losing from the state budget for the cost of treating folks with hepatitis C. Um, we know that hepatitis C is a curable disease, but a course of treatment costs $100,000, which is something that when we learn in class about how a disease process works, we don't often think about and realize that the cost of treating that disease can be astronomical. But we also know that in Iowa, we're not looking at $100,000 for just a few folks to get treatment. So we just read a report that said up to 150,000 Iowans might be living with hep C and a good number of those undiagnosed. So you do the math, 150,000 <laughs> times 100,000. No, absolutely. And actually nowadays it's recommended by all primary care physicians that you do regular hepatitis C screening. I believe it's in the baby boomer generation that actually has higher rates that are not known about. And so we have to, in a certain age range, we screen everybody for hepatitis C. And I think, like we mentioned before, that's been the typical way that we screen is for folks in that in that baby boomer generation. But now that we're seeing this huge increase among people in our peer group, that's something that we have to think about too. Absolutely. So if we think of needle exchange as a good route for making some positive changes, can we talk about the barriers that we have currently in Iowa that we have to overcome so that we can get needle exchange. Kim, do you want to talk a bit about that? Right now, I think the most simple barrier is that we don't have a law permitting us to dispense syringes. It's something that we could take to the legislature, but we could also take to our own municipalities. That's what I'm doing. There's uh, municipal needle exchanges going on across our country and I believe that all you know all politics are local just like they say and um, by starting to move in our own communities perhaps we could show statistically with data that we are indeed saving lives so I guess there's a couple different approaches that we can go with uh, I know Governor Christie just signed a needle exchange clean needle exchange law in the state of New Jersey here in the last week I think I saw the headlines so we can get it done the Iowa legislature it, it's tough we just keep going back and going back and we continue to try to expand our base of our little overdose law with our naloxone. But municipalities don't overlook the fact that they do great things and you have local government that will help you do that often, actually often, they're often very supportive. In this month's issue of Health Affairs, there's an article about the opioid epidemic and about bipartisan support. And so what the authors of the article found is that opioid legislation is one thing that Republicans and Democrats unite on and share quite similar views on in our U.S. Congress. And the report found that 92% and 81% of Democrats and Republicans respectively support treatment for drug use instead of prison time. Um, they showed that these groups have almost a, some identical numbers in favor of prevention programs for hepatitis C like needle exchange, naloxone, and other harm reduction legislation. So that, in especially our current political climate, is a really remarkable thing that folks are able to come to the table and agree on this. And in other hopeful news, maybe Dr. Martinez, you can speak a little bit about changes in 
opioid prescriptions. Yes, no, absolutely. So there's huge effort right now going on with um, trying to change physician practice in prescribing opioids in excess. And actually, the Surgeon General came out last week, I believe, with a large email and open letter to uh, providers talking about the dangers of opioids and that this is something as healthcare society that we need to continue to work on. So some practical changes that are going on, all of us are being trained even further on opioid prescription practice and when are good times to prescribe opioids and what things are not indicated for opioids specifically. Additionally, I know that the university itself here at the University of Iowa, we're changing our system for people who are on chronic opioids to a team approach. So people can only get their prescription medications even though they can be mailed specifically um, to the patient so they don't have to come here specifically to get it. But they will have one place, one pharmacy that they get their medication and monthly um, will have check-ins by not only the pharmacist but also somebody on an opioid plan care team as well as the physician with strategies that if it's not working and they're still having problems or chronic pain that we try actively to address those in different ways. So I think these systems will be better and help limit the amount of opioids that are going out. One thing that we haven't talked about very much yet in our medical education is addiction medicine and how you might treat a patient who becomes addicted to opioids. And I recently learned from one of our professors that only 2% of medical schools offer any training in addiction medicine. What if I become addicted to opioids and I decide that I'm ready to seek help? What are my options for treatment? Yeah, so there are a couple of different types of options, and some are inpatient, some are outpatient, some definitely use medications like Suboxone. Some of the interesting things, though, with that, specifically Suboxone as a a treatment, is that you have to have a special license to be able to prescribe that, and that's very limited. I only know one clinic in Cedar Rapids. There's, I don't even know if there's anything, and I'm I'm pretty sure there isn't anything in Iowa City that you can get a Subox, that you can actually get Suboxone, and so that's been pretty limited, which I think is difficult, particularly for opioids abuse. Can you tell us about Suboxone, how it works? Yeah, so it's also a partial agonist. So it helps relieve some of the cravings, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, give people a pleasurable experience from the medication itself. So helping people to not have those cravings um, and not feel discomfort particularly, but also not necessarily getting high or having a potential experience from it. There's A lot of folks who might like to access Suboxone and Methadone in Iowa, it sounds like, Kim. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how how you might access these drugs in Iowa. Um, Right now, as Dr. Martinez said, we do not have enough physicians trained and dispensing Suboxone. I do believe that the president upped with the care bill the amount of patients that doctors can take now was increased. The problem is getting the doctors that are doing the treating right now to be able to increase their patient load and to get other doctors trained so that they can also dispense. In my community, and I did have a map pulled up of the clinics throughout Iowa. In my community, in Davenport, we have a methadone and suboxone clinic. They do not take provider insurance though. It's all on a cash basis. And then they do have a methadone clinic over in Rock Island that people can access. And I believe that's a cash basis as well. So I've talked to mothers who are frantic because they can't even find a doctor close that they can take their kids to to be treated and obtain Suboxone. It's something that we really need to work on here in Iowa. 
And my understanding, at least with the clinic here in Cedar Rapids, is that, you know, you have to go every day to get the drug specifically, and then you have to pay every day for that drug. And I believe it was 18 to $20 a day is my understanding. And that's, that's a lot of money. That adds up very, very quickly. If you're talking about costs, think about the cost savings. Again, if we're talking about treating with Suboxone or Methadone as opposed to going into inpatient treatment. Because oh, with, absolutely. The, with these medicated assisted treatments, there's detox is not necessary. In fact, detox can be detrimental, as we know, because if somebody is discharged and uses, they most likely die. So just think of the cost savings we'd have if we could get folks with the medicated-assisted treatment and not having to go into these extensive, for-profit, a lot of times, treatment centers where they insist on detoxing. I think we need to look at that component of it too. Yes, no, absolutely. I completely agree. I just know for the patient themselves, obviously, it's a lot that they have to do out of pocket and I wish there was a better system to help them to pay for it. Petra and Cam, what do you guys think? If you were graduating from medical school right now or maybe you had just finished your residency, would you get the license to prescribe Suboxone? I think that's a really interesting question. So let's say I'm going to go practice in my community and I'm the only person who is licensed and trained. My entire practice might be just dispensing Suboxone. And I think that that's also a barrier too for some physicians is that, you know, maybe one physician has training, but without a critical mass of physicians to absorb the patients, that might be a barrier too for a physician wanting to offer that service. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that, especially for currently practicing physicians who have an overwhelming caseload already. They can't just turn down the patients that they've been seeing for many years so that they can now provide Suboxone to an entirely new patient base. But I think that you're right, Sarah, in saying that we need kind of this multi-pronged approach. We need to decrease the amount of opioids we're prescribing. We need to increase the availability of medications, medication-assisted treatment. We need to increase access to naloxone. We need to increase access to clean needles. This isn't just like a one-stop shop. We've got to expand. And I think that's really good in thinking about addressing this opioid epidemic because there's a lot of ways that all different types of people can be involved, community members, physicians, medical students. There's a way for all of us to band together on this issue and really try to make a change. And I think it takes a lot of coordination then from our legislature and policymakers and decision makers in our own community, including at our hospital and in our medical school, to work together to say, how can we get all of these pieces moving in coordination with one another to make opioid abuse and addiction and pain management work in an effective, safe way in our state? One thing I'm wondering about, too, is how you might go about coordinating medication-assisted treatment in our own health system. Does UIHC do medication-assisted treatment? Is there a program? You mean specifically for Suboxone or? Yeah, or Methadone. Or Methadone. Yeah, can you get it here in our hospital? No. So when the university helps with people who are actively detoxing, if they need hospitalization, they can come here to the university. But as far as active treatment is particularly with medication, not usually, but there have been some dual programs, due diagnosis programs, particularly with psychiatry that help to address sometimes mental illness related to addiction. But we definitely need, we need, we need more. 
So next week, or rather the week after the week of September 26th through September 30th, um, we here at the Carver College of Medicine, along with some of our colleagues from the University of Iowa School of Dentistry and School of Pharmacy, are hosting a summit on opioid overdose prevention. Um, But we're talking about much more than opioid overdose. We're talking about pain management and about opioid addiction, about prevention of chronic disease associated with opioid use like um, hepatitis C and HIV. And we're talking about how we can address these issues from a clinical perspective as health providers from multiple professions and how we can address these issues from a community angle, like through the work Kim is doing, and also from a policy perspective. So we'll have folks speaking every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Our speakers will come from uh, the Department of Emergency Medicine. Dr. D. Martinez will be one of our speakers. Um, we'll have folks from psychiatry, and we're also happy to welcome the dean of our School of Medicine and the vice president of our healthcare system, Dr. Robillard. Um, but we're also excited to welcome some legislators as well. We'll have Representative Bob Dvorsky from our own community and Senator Joe Bolkan, who's also from our local community, as well as a wonderful representative from the Des Moines area, Akhil Abdul Samad, who has introduced the naloxone legislation in the last session. And then finally, we hope that folks will join us during the summit to take part in advocacy and action activities. We have a really wonderful opportunity here as a large group of people united with similar interests in protecting patients' health and helping people lead healthy lives to make requests to the state legislator to take action that helps people to be healthy. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and give us a review. If you want to react to anything you've heard today, head on over to theshortcoat.com slash tell us or give us a call at 347-SHORT-CT. That's 347-746-7828. We'd really love to hear from you. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our editor and engineer is Aline Sanduk. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox. And our closing music is by Agrifox. Talk to you in one week. 